when we're being called as rheumatologists, it's about is the target the blood vessel? Is this an antibody-mediated disease or autoimmune encephalitis? Is this in the context of a systemic disease? And then ultimately, is this in the context of an immune dysregulation, which is a whole lot more difficult, I think, and it's a growing, growing field and everything in between, frankly. That's Dr. Sousa Bensler. She is the director of the Alberta Children's Hospital Research Institute, a professor in the Department of Pediatrics, Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary, the Synovus Energy Chair in Child and Maternal Health, and the Alberta Children's Hospital Foundation Chair in Pediatric Research. We are very happy to have her as our guest on this episode of Around the Room, talking about CNS vasculitis and autoimmune encephalitis and all the things in between that I have so much to learn about. Um, I'm Daniel Ennis, and a very warm welcome back to my fabulous co-host, Dr. Janet Pope. How are you, Janet? Great. How are you, Daniel? I'm pretty good. Thanks for asking. Uh, Before we get to our guest, I want to announce some upcoming episodes on a whole bunch of interesting topics, including a new French episode with host Dr. Hugues Allard-Chamard, talking to the University of Montreal's Dr. Nicolas Richard. We are also going to be working on some new Medical Mysteries episodes and Indigenous episodes for you. If you have questions you would like answered by the experts, please get in touch through the CRA Twitter account at CRASCRroom or email info at room.ca. And for future Medical Mystery episodes, please get in touch if you have challenging cases you want to present on the podcast. So now on with our show and our guest, Dr. Susa Bensler. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's really our pleasure. Um, you're, you are a big get for the podcast. You um, are a, a, a researcher and a brilliant clinician. And I actually got to see you in action uh, uh, during a studentship when I was uh, a clinical clerk uh, in, in Toronto. So I've seen you work and I, I read your articles closely. And I'm really excited to talk about kind of neurologic inflammatory diseases. So... Um, you know, inflammatory diseases of the CNS feel like a particularly challenging area for rheumatologists, I think. I, I hope I'm reasonably speaking for most of us when I say that. Most of us uh, do not have focus training in neurology or neuroimaging. That means we often end up using our, our usual tools for systemic inflammatory diseases to interrogate and evaluate the CNS. Um, but I think you can help us have a more sophisticated approach to those issues. So I'd like to start, if we can with um, a discussion of kind of what are the broad categories of inflammatory brain disorders and which one should rheumatologists uh, be responsible for or look after? Thanks, Daniel. This is, um, for me, the reason I am in rheumatology is because all of what we do relies on partnerships. You know, you think about lupus and renal disease or CNS disease. I I know the the brain is kind of a mystery for, for all of us not being trained in rheumatology, but I think as rheumatologists, we're quite comfortable with the fact that we have one part to contribute, understanding the immune system, understanding inflammation and understanding the treatments, but perhaps not so much understanding the clinical presentation. So um, it's very uh, tricky to say what is the best um, the, the best kind of categories of uh, brain inflammation. And there are you know, different approaches depending on you want to look at the target of the inflammatory uh, response. Do you want to look at the histology? Do you want to look at the clinical phenotype? And we've been working on it for quite some time, figuring out what is the best, um, what is the best approach. I think what we're comfortable with is 
um, recognizing when brain inflammation occurs in the context of our diseases, let's say lupus, Shad's disease, or any of those. Um, so uh, brain inflammation in the context or se secondary brain inflammation, really. Um, but what about primary brain inflammation? For primary brain inflammation, uh, my personal approach is, has been, is it something that is antibody mediated and that is a huge group of diseases um, even independent of systemic antibody mediated diseases is it something that targets the blood vessels which is what we're calling vasculitis and um, uh, that's that's an, another big part and then is it something that um, that has a specific um, a phenotype of inflammation such as granulomatous inflammation and the, which which is another uh, another big category the one category that I really struggle with is those that are uh, occurring in the basis of immune dysregulation. And over the last five, 10 years, we've learned a lot about auto-inflammatory diseases, immune dysregulation, hyperinflammation. So all of those diseases where it's not a particular specific um, pathway and specific target. You know where you have some immune dis immune dysfunction and some hyperinflammation, which is really the hallmark of immune dysregulation. So it's a big part. Some of them being genetically determined, some of them being without a gene that we are aware of. But in in principle, I think when we are when we're being called as rheumatologists, it's it's about is the target the blood vessel. Is this an antibody-mediated disease or autoimmune encephalitis? Is this in the context of a systemic disease? That is our uh, area of expertise. And then ultimately, is this in the context of an immune dysregulation, which is a whole lot more difficult, I think. And it's a growing, growing field um, uh, and everything in between, frankly. That's a really helpful scaffold for the discussion antibody-mediated, blood vessel-mediated, um, kind of pathology-driven or histology-driven granulomatous versus yeah. other immune dysregulation. That That's really interesting. Uh, Janet, Like when you take, you do a lot of call and you see lots of sick folks as well, um, when you get called to see someone for you know autoimmune encephalitis, I'm curious, is this kind of similar in terms of how you approach those problems? Right. So first of all, um, I always feel very much that I'm walking, you know, on eggshells or with trepidation because um, it makes a big difference if we're going to immune suppress, whether like, well, I'm not seeing the kids, but the pediatric room colleagues, and certainly we're seeing the adults. Um, you don't want to immune suppress someone if it's a virus that hasn't been identified yet as a, for instance, and then they get even worse. So I feel we're often called in when I would say cultures are negative, um, way before any brain biopsy and often imaging, including it might be an MRA or an actual angiogram. And then it's showing hints of things that might be uh, throughout or just in one area of the brain that um, someone has said, oh, it looks like beating vasculitis or it looks like there might be multiple, multiple small ischemic changes, but in the wrong context mm -hmm. or the dreaded antibody profile is a strongly positive who knows what. Um, but I must say when we're called, I, I feel in adults, and again, I am not an expert in this, and um, 
we have a neurologist and then also Lillian Barra that have far more expertise. So I also want a lifeline, call someone, run it by them, review mm-hmm. the imaging by the neuroradiologist, uh, not by the regular one on call, because a lot can be said to, you know, to make that differential. That's a differential of anything and everything of um, infection, lymphoma, metastatic, et cetera, et cetera. To really say, like, what what do you think if you're a betting person? What do you think it looks like? And then finally, um, if we're really talking about um, an encephalitis, et cetera, where something is really wrong with the brain of the patient and there is no obvious systemic disease that would make it easier for us to say, oh, yeah, the Bichette's and now this is part of it. Um, I, I actually really want tissue. So I don't know if that's a way to think about it, but that's kind of what I do on call. And we really um, try not to put that order into the system of, oh, let's give a bunch of solumedrol until mm-hmm. we really know what's going on. Yeah. And, and I, I do want to kind of get to the question of brain biopsy in, in a moment, but I'm hoping that we can kind of uh, learn about your approach to these cases sort of in, in order in a way. So if we could start off, um, what are some kind of key features you're listening for when you're taking a, a history or when you're residents reviewing with you? Oh, thanks, uh, thanks, Daniel. I think the um, everybody thinks infection, and it's right, right? Everybody should think infection. As Janet said, infections are far more common than mock antibodies or, or you know, that. so when children come through the door and they have a newly acquired neurological deficit of any kind, focal or diffuse deficit or a significant uh, change in um, in mental health uh, or, or alertness, typically people think about an infectious uh, an infectious agent and that's right. you know you should we shouldn't we shouldn't change people should not withhold any antibacterial or antiviral therapy because there could be an inflammatory disease, primary inflammatory disease behind it. this the the challenge is that the that the the in the absence of a systemic illness, which we're always searching for very carefully, and it's basically one of the reasons why we exist in rheumatology, because we find the joints, we find the rashes, and we find the whatever. But um, um, in the in the absence of a systemic illness, I think the the features, uh, clinical features of an inflammatory brain in, brain disease, are not strikingly different from an infectious, and that that is a big problem, right? Like for example. Herpes infections give you temporal um, uh, disease, but but other in- antibi- antibodies give you temporal disease too. So I don't think that the clinical picture helps you a ton. Perhaps it helps you in the opposite way. So when you think this is an infection and the patient does not have any CRPs or ESRs, um, antibody-mediated disease is still a possibility because it oftentimes doesn't leave a fingerprint. So perhaps in the in the absence of it, the challenge is that the, um, that, so infection is first and it should be first. Malignancy should always in the back of our heads, um, um, as, as Janet was saying, and inflammation I think should be right on it. I think inflammation is probably more common than, than malignancy is, but we're always worried about uh, malignancies. So I think this this approach is uh, is is kind of the thinking that I have. The problem is the lack of specificity. Any focal or diffuse deficit, any encephalopathy, or any seizure, new onset of seizures, or psychiatric manifestation. I'm not saying every psychiatric manifestation is infl- inflammation, but 
um, the 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 phenotype is unfortunately not super helpful. There are a few conditions though, such as anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, where the story makes basically the diagnosis. There are not a lot of them, but there are a few. So it's really important, similar to what we do in um, when we do our history for rheumatic diseases to do a history or for auto-inflammatory diseases, which is different from rheumatic disease, as you guys know, um, uh, that that the uh, the inflammatory brain disease history is also a slight bit different. You know, is there a history of progressive hallucinations? Is there a history of uh, GI disease? Any of any of those? So it does it does uh, require a bit of a different approach on the on the history side. The problem is that the clinical phenotype, for the most part, is not diagnostic. It is; it doesn't separate infection from inflammation from malignancy. Um, but I think they need to be equally considered, and infections need to be obviously treated first. Of course, and kind of along those lines, then. So history, you're using more to look for, you know, maybe other things, or look for, uh, in, you know, an infectious prodrome and. Uh, and and less helpful for defining the precise uh, etiology most of the time. Presumably, physical exam is is the same way. Is that so? The challenge is, uh, Daniel. You know, you and Janet and I are not neurologists. We're we're not right. This is where our partnership with neurology um, is really really important. I mean, we we all yeah. I think learn about dyskinesia, perioral dyskinesia, how that you know reflects anti NMDA receptor encephalitis. But but I heavily rely on my partners in neurology to tell me what kind of specific deficit there there is. What is it? Um, you know, you can have a lot of different things at the same time: seizure disorder, hemiplegia. Uh, there, there. I don't think we should we should claim that field for ourselves only. I think that we should claim the component of we know about the particular pathways of inflammation and how we can interfere with those i'm not sure we should claim understanding the clinical phenotype when it comes to the either neurological or psychiatric manifestations i'm really relieved to hear you say that because i was kind of worried that you were going to tell me i i uh, should be <laughs> should be able to do this all myself and i definitely can't um so that that's really helpful so of course these are like team diagnoses and uh, no one should you know, should should go it alone when it comes to all these different disorders that span different specialties and and require all of our skill to to solve. So may, maybe then we can uh, kind of talk about where where I think some of the money is, which is how do you actually go about investigating it, and and maybe we can start with uh, lab based investigations and how you kind of organize your testing yep. uh, in your head. Yeah, so um, the as you know, CNS and spinal cord diseases don't leave a big fat fingerprint, especially if they are occurring in isolation, right? That's a that's a uh, that's a big challenge. Um, so the your your biggest bang for the buck is the CSF, and you know I've I've seen this in the past that people hesitate to do CSFs because the child is whatever. I think we we do need to do this. It it's uh, um it is um the key if you have a a, a, a a CSF without any pleocytosis, without any abnormalities, vasculitic diseases are highly unlikely. At least small vessel vasculitic diseases are highly unlikely. Um, it is the way you get the highest sensitivity for neuronal antibodies. 
um, because you know the CSF is more sensitive to, to picking them up compared to the uh, the serum. Uh, with regards to the serum, there are not a lot of markers. So uh, we always do our CRPs, ESRs, if, as uh, at least if we're allowed to do them. And uh, I, I oftentimes dread that people say the CRP and ESR is negative, therefore it can't be an inflammatory brain disease. I think that's much more of a thing than than the opposite. It's it's worrisome, right? And you, you're both nodding. It's it's uh, the brain is a really uh, really nicely protected area. Unfortunately, too protected when it comes to measuring um, markers. We always do a CBC diff. We always do a CRP ESR. Um, looking for sodium has been becoming a little bit of my uh, my thingies um, because hyponatremia is uh, is a hallmark of one of the um, uh, one of the antibody mediated diseases LGI one, and you know over time we will learn we will learn a lot of little tiny fingerprints that that antibodies leave, but it's it's a bit esoteric. The key thing is we need to we need to do um, we need to send. Um, markers from the blood that may have a specificity. We Tanya Salucci showed that um, Van Willebrand factor antigen may be a good marker for vascular diseases, and we're still continuing to measure them. And there are, in about 70, 70 to 80 percent, there are good marker erased uh, Van Willebrand factor antigen. For the neuronal antibodies, it's really the evidence of the antibodies. And again, it's much more likely to, to find them in the CSF than, uh, than in the serum. Um, obviously, for Bichette's disease, you're looking at Bichette's markers. For lupus, you're looking for those markers, um, and for systemic inflammatory diseases. And yeah, so that's that's where we're we are. We we do the serum markers for the same, but I, you know, they're they're almost like counterintuitive. If you have a CRP of 200, not so sure you're doing with dealing with a pre, with an inflammatory disease. You probably okay. ask colleagues from. From um, from infectious disease, except for you have autoinflammation. Again, that's another little tiny fly in the ointment. Um, mm-hmm. um, and then the key thing is uh, CSF testing. Look for opening pressure. Look for markers of pleocytosis and other abnormalities, and send it for um, neuronal antibodies. I think neuronal antibodies in the last little while, the last five years or so, have become probably the biggest cohort as so antibody mediated diseases or autoimmune encephalitis in the pediatric world has far overtaken vasculitis in in our spaces or secondary diseases well we're on that when you're doing the lp are you paying much attention to protein or glucose no and if so and does it help to rule in or rule out anything i mean that you we were taught that we're looking for glucose for tbs right right and we, we're taught that um Protein um, raises as as a marker of uh, of leakage of uh, of uh, of inflam- inflammation. I don't find them quite as helpful as uh, as pleocytosis. It's typically um, lymphocytic pleocytosis. It can be anything from nine to nine hundred cells. Again, the higher they are, the more um, infection is on the on the list. Similar to what you find in in joints when you tap them. Yeah. There's one antibody that I thought was interesting because, uh, like the anti-mog antibody, um, are, do you are you sending that on serum or you've you've you're just sending it on uh, CSF? Daniel, it's so funny. So this is aging aging me. Okay, for the last twenty years, mog <laughs> was considered nothing. Then it was considered a wow important um, marker. Then it was considered nothing, and probably the truth is somewhere in between. Um, I think you can get mock antibodies from injury 
to to tissue. Um, we've seen MOG antibodies in patients that have no MOGAD disease, MOG-associated disease. Um, but if you have a clinical phenotype of MOGAD, of you know, uh, optic neuritis, anything that that you would would expect with MOG antibodies, then then they probably mean something. But um, but it's also it can also be an epiphenomenon. I've seen that a few times where I'd be like, what the heck? Why did we end up testing it? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> The, the availability of testing for, for serum versus CSF really depends on the lab. The vast majority of labs do it, um, do it in this, in the serum, frankly. You can, you can, um, test it in both the serum and the CSF. I've never been, um, terribly convinced that one is better than the other. I know that there's a high false positive or not false positive. There is a, what the heck does it mean, right? If you find it in the CSF, right? And, uh, Again, it's the correlation of the mock antibody with the clinical phenotype that is relevant. So it, it, in that sense, it feels like many of our other antibodies where someone sends it and then they ask us about it and we go, eh, that, that one doesn't matter. Oh, that one's really important. You know, uh, so, so it, everything requires that clinical correlation in a way. Um, and clinical correlation um, kind of is a jumping off point for our next uh, kind of topic, which is imaging. Um, how do you choose the right test and how should we uh, approach interpretation of, uh, yeah. of imaging for these patients? So key thing is, if you don't think it's a, it's a bleed, then a CT scan is probably useless, right? If you're thinking inflammation and you're trying to find it in the tissue, the CT scan is probably not going to help you, but actually fool you. Um, with the only reason we do CT scans is if there, if we're thinking this is a bleed or if there's a clot in the venous system, you know, sometimes in patients, patients, but, um, but otherwise the MRI is the way to go for you. The, um, the, for all of our patients, because they're children and these studies take forever, um, we, we have to be really careful. I think it's really important to connect with the radiologist and say, this is what I'm suspecting. You know, let's say you have a um, you have a phenotype that could be a vascular territory, like you have a hemiparesis, and you think this could be in um, middle cerebral ar artery territory. Um, so you're worried: could this be something in the parenchyma, or could this be something in the vasculature that feeds it? And uh, then you you may want to do all at the same time. You may want to image the vessels potentially when they see something in the tissue that is vascular distribution. Go back to the vessels and do a post uh, uh, post GAT um, vascular wall imaging to see if you find any uh, evidence of vascular wall disease. But it's um, that's the, so that's the the bottom line. I don't give a whole lot. Uh, I don't pay a whole lot of attention to contrast versus no contrast in the parenchyma. Um, I mm -hmm. think they've done a quite bit of studies in the in MS where they said are these lesions contrast enhancement enhancing or not. That means are they fresh or old lesions? Not so sure if we we pay the same amount of attention to any of our non-demyelinating lesions. The key thing is there are lesions. Are they in? Are they symmetrical? Are they bilateral? Are they in vascular territories? Do they correspond to the clinical phenotype? And do you have a vascular etiology that affects the large vessels, or do you presume this is something that happens either in the small vasculature? or in the parenchyma directly. So the, key, the the bottom line is MRI is the way to go. And I mm -hmm. think 
conversation with the neuroradiologist before you send, especially the children, before you send the children into the MRI, discussing what kind of suspicion you have and what kind of protocol you need, because it happens, I would say, more than 50% of the time that neuroradiologists with the best of intentions run their standard protocol for X, and then you go back and they say, you know, is there a dissection? Is there vascular wall enhancement? Is there um, is there, um, corn- uh, is there a spinal cord disease? Um, is there, um, is, did you do optic views, designated optic views? So a lot of things are not standard, but they may be really important based on your clinical exam or your pretest um, assessment. That's uh, just a, just a, there's no one recipe fits all. The, the studies have to be as short as they can because it's children and you have a sedation or an anesthesia for them, but it has to be as sufficiently clear um, uh, and that really anchors in the car, in the communication with the neuroradiologist. I, I, I think that's, uh, that's really helpful. Um, you know, uh, maybe I'll ask this to Janet, you know, I, I think you may have um, some experience with this, but how often are you reaching for conventional uh, angio for, you know, you, you did a CTA or an MRA, it came back negative, but your suspicion is still high. Um, are, are you still using that test or have you been talked out of it by uh, radiology? Right. So first of all, the radiologists don't love conventional angiograms. It takes more time. But I think we're sometimes doing it not because it's because we'll see what could be, um, I'll say, quote unquote, compatible with vasculitis, we'll say, in a watershed territory in the middle cerebral artery. And we go, but it looks like there's blood or a stroke because, again, we're dealing with adults, right, where it could be something that's nothing to do with vasculitis, but they're obtunded, they're not responding right, et cetera, they're in the wrong age group, you know, et cetera, when we get called. So sometimes we want to do that angio to say, we don't think there's vasculitis. We think they were in spasm. And now it's like two days later, can you run a proper angio and, and see? But that being said and done, we do not do it very often. Um, but um, sometimes as well, I would say, when I say a few days, it could even be a week, but some period of time later, that's sometimes the repeat, I'm talking about adults now, sometimes the repeat um, MRI brain is going to help us. Okay, and w- w- was this thing in evolution? The person is still saying status, but you know, it looks like things are now improving, or is there more cerebral edema, or whatever? Right. So sometimes we, you know, we wouldn't usually recommend to do two scans back to back so quickly, but sometimes it's really to say, "Hey, are we going the right or the wrong direction?" And we really are floundering here. We don't know what to do next. Can you help us? I don't know if you see that sometimes in kids do yeah, say that you'll we say. Do. I mean, I'm just thinking of a number of uh, scenarios. So for example, necrotizing disease, you know, necrotizing disease in the brain is absolutely devastating and it changes very quickly. And, you know, in the when the child is um, uh, has a seizure status or is has severe encephalopathy, clinically, there's absolutely nothing you can tell. The only, the only thing you can do is repeat the imaging really quickly. Um, I, I agree. There are diseases that are in the evolution and I think the um, a partnership with a neuroradiologist is really critical because they're, they're oftentimes um, that is the only the only way we can tell is that a stable situation are we getting anywhere with our medications or or really are we heading in the entirely wrong direction? You're, I agree with you, Janet. 
I, I think that that sort of leads us to then a discussion around brain biopsy, uh, when it's appropriate and when we should start having that conversation. Uh, Susa, how often do you folks reach for that tool? So the uh, it's, it's a good question. It's not frequent. It's really not frequent. I think that's a bit of a representation of um, people um, seeing more um, antibody-mediated diseases and vasculitides in the last little while because mm-hmm. we're now able to recognize them using the, the tools that we have. The second piece is that um, the the brain biopsies are, I think they're, they're not necessarily confirmatory tests with small vessel vasculitis anymore. They're basically tests to rule out other etiologies. And I think in those, in those scenarios, they still play a role. And, um, you know, I think we've been punished. All of us have been punished when we ended up not doing it because it ended up being a a rare T cell lymphoma. It ended up being a, an infectious uh, process that, uh, that we probably, uh, should have picked up before using aggressive immunotherapy those those um those scenarios but it continues it continues to be um um really a an important conversation with infectious disease with uh the the um uh the oncologist and us because ultimately it's not about oh yeah we're using it as a diagnostic test for small vessel vasculitis it's ultimately it's a diagnostic test to make a diagnosis to not do harm with treatments, but do good. And yeah, so it's, uh, I haven't seen over the last 10 years or so, I haven't seen the numbers increase uh, of, um, of, uh, of brain biopsies. I think they are pretty steady because it is always the, the sit- situation where, where things are unclear. I don't think we should have any conversation about, oh, um, we should never do it or we should always do it. I think we have to be really thoughtful about when is it needed because any treatment decisions um, may cause harm and not good. I, I don't know, Janet, how, how you see it. Right. So what I would say is if it's an adult who in whom uh, we think with the testing today that it is um, isolated CNS vasculitis, because a lot of these times the patients might have, um, you know, atherosclerotic disease, et cetera. And in when it's an adult and we're kind of thinking toying with this is isolated CNS vasculitis because imaging is pointing that way, we can see vasculitis changes in lymphoma. We can see it sometimes in mats, but usually primary CNS lymphoma. We can also see it, you know, you had mentioned earlier, um, those herpes viruses are sneaky and they do cause vasculitis in an area. Um, so that kind of thing, it's really to say, you know, am I using cyclophosphamide or rituximab in this patient? Um, I don't want to, I do not want to treat the wrong thing. Aside from that, I would say the majority of times we're consulted, it's usually more an acute event or an acute on chronic. The patient might be obtunded. There might or might be localizing findings. And if we don't think it's, if CNS vasculitis is not being higher pretest likelihood, then we're not going to go for a brain biopsy. When we do want a brain biopsy, we are often fighting, by the way, with neurosurge because they don't like to do it. And they, you know, for obvious reasons, um, mm-hmm. even the consent is obviously tricky and probably even far trickier in little little people. Um, Daniel, would that be your experience, do you think, yeah. in Vancouver? Yeah, very much so. Like, I, I think reasonably people are anxious to even bring it up because, um, 
you know, it's going to mean yeah. a surgical intervention. They may already be on aspirin or anticoagulated. And um, they. I, I think everyone intuits that that's going to be a mess. And if you can just get away with, you know, getting rheumatology to say it's vasculitis or neurology to figure out that it's an autoimmune encephalitis, you can skip that part and go right to the treatment. And I, I think that that's a lovely idea. I, I worry, be, you know, about all of those cases that I miss because I'm not a neurologist, because I'm not a hematologist. And, um, and so while I'm aware of many of those diagnoses, I'm never going to be the super, super expert in those fields. And um, I think I, I, I think when I ask for a brain biopsy, I, I do want it done. Like it's because it's because I'm struggling here. And I think it kind of depends on the neurosurgeon you're working with and the neurology team, how supportive people can be of that. Sometimes they're really helpful and do an amazing job. And sometimes um, they quote, you know, more morbidity risks or mortality risks of 10%, which is too high. That's not, that's not how high the procedure should be. It's high. <laughs> but of course it depends how sick your, uh, your patient is. So, uh, you know, I, I think that it's a tricky one because it, it might help me, be more confident in a diagnosis or or at least rule out some of the other horrible things that it could be where the treatment is different. And um, I think it's just, it can be hard to articulate all of that because I'm not a, you know, an angiocentric lymphoma expert. And so when they say, well, you know, you're going to give them Pred and Cyclo or Pred and Retux or Pred and whatever. Anyways, yeah. um, why do you need the biopsy? Just do it. The morbidity of treatment is less than the morbidity of uh, me doing the brain biopsy. One, I, I don't think it should be. Um, and, and two, uh, you know, there's, there's more at play than just what's our first treatment that we're going to give. There's other considerations down the road. What would you want if it was your, your mom? Um, do you want, you know, me guessing at it? Educated guess, sure, but guessing at it? Or, or do you want to know? It can be really tricky. Um, so yes, I, I, similar. Daniel, they, when, when they uh, see a single lesion that is space-occupying, everybody will jump on it and, and do a biopsy, right? Because everybody thinks this clear cut is a tumor, which is oftentimes it's not. Right? Absolutely. Yeah? Absolutely. Yeah. So we're kind of sitting on our hands and saying, okay, sure, you want to be certain that that's what it is, and there's no question that a brain biopsy is required from your perspective. I yeah. think from my perspective is if you have... Um, inflammatory lesions in the brain, a clinical phenotype that corresponds uh, to it, let's say cognitive decline, new onset seizures, and you have inflammatory markers, especially in the CSF that that support this. I think there is it, it builds a level of comfort, but mm -hmm. but it may not, right? But if uh, if the the level of comfort is not rising because there is zero inflammatory markers because the lesion is um, uh, space occupying, herniating, those kinds of things. I, I mm -hmm. you know, I think we just have to acknowledge the discomfort that we have with, with what could be an inflammation, but it, it does need a proof before we jump on it with with therapies. I think the, the conversation and the acknowledgement of uncertainty, especially when uncertainty can cause or can lead to decisions that can cause harm, that's uh, that's usually where where I anchor it. Not because I know. Um, this is what it is, and I need a brain biopsy to prove and proof stamp it. That's not 
not really the reason to do it in my mind. It, and yeah. Susa, I think that's an excellent teaching point that I do try to tell trainees, no matter what topic we're in, to say possible with features of boom, 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 yeah. right? Pre-test likelihood medium, say something like that on every note until we are more certain because we get these diagnostic, uh, basically they, the blinders on, right? So if we say, oh, we think it's antibody mediated, the antibodies, of course, are going to be sadly lost, but hopefully not. But they're going to take a long time. These aren't standardly done. Even when you in um, in uh, Alberta, you have excellent, at least one excellent antibody lab that's doing all sorts of stuff. It still takes time, and we are going to have to treat in the meantime. So possible antibody-driven, blah, blah, blah. I think it's really, really important that we say, you know, features of or here's the here's where it, it blends here's where it could be but of course there's always going to be especially in kids or adults that background history of oh, oh by the way they were in contact with someone with chicken pox or right there's always going to be some other little funny part of the story that you, you don't know is that relevant or not the red herrings like the detectives would say um so i think that's really good to say we're you know, we are operating under the diagnosis of whatever, but we're not fully certain. And that's okay, but I think it's the best way because all the consulting teams, because this does take a village, then they also know that we haven't slam dunked, uh, here's the label. Yeah, I, I think our, our, our specialty in general kind of takes on a lot of diseases where we have to be comfortable not knowing. And um, that suits me just fine because I often don't know stuff. So uh, it's uh, well, maybe, well, a good, <laughs> maybe a good and specialty also, for me. are going to help the way dexamethasone would, right? If there's cerebral edema, the person could improve and it might be nothing to do with our diagnosis. Absolutely. I, I, it's a very, this, this particular area of rheumatology, I find to be particularly humbling. And, and so I think you both described ways that you label your notes, talk to other services, involve them, um, where you, you are humble and do not bring ego to the, the, uh, the diagnosis because these ones will fool us and are very uh, difficult to, to manage. Um, Susa, I'm wondering if you can offer us a bit of a general framework for how you approach treatment. Each of these diseases may have a different um, yeah. protocol 10 years from now, but, but you know, we're, I feel like we're still very much in the infancy of teasing them apart uh, in terms of management. Yeah, I wish we had a you know a big biomarker panel that says pick treatment A, treatment pick treatment B, but we don't, right? We we basically say this is presumed or confirmed brain inflammation, and really at the at the initial stage for for literally all of them, we're using corticosteroids because they're. They're, they tend to be the fastest um, fastest acting medication. The neurologists love IVIG, you know that, right? They love it. <laughs> so for for many of our of our conditions, we've uh, we kind of somehow incorporated IVIG because they get it anyways before they call it. But um, but, but uh, in principle, in principle, the the vasculitic diseases so far. Um, the, the best evidence for vasculitic diseases, um, if they're progressive large vessel or if they're small vessel, the best evidence in addition to steroids has been cyclophosphamide. A lot of people have been using uh, uh, mycophenolate, um, and and you know there you, there is a there is a case for it uh, to make similar to what we do in lupus, right? It probably has a has a somewhat um, a somewhat um, 
comparable effectiveness. However, um, the the data is better for cyclo than it is not better, but there's more data for cyclo than there is uh, for uh, for a microfenolid. And um, and frankly, if uh, people have devastating progressive large vessel disease, I tend to I tend to uh, always share with the families. This is the evidence we have, and we we you know it can cut the protocol shorter and similar to what we've done with UVASP or your uh, the lupus your lupus or UVASP protocols to decrease toxicity, but for large progressive large vessel and small vessel, you have these two options uh, with cyclo having more more evidence. Steroids is always a the fastest acting uh, fastest acting approach. On the antibody mediated side, I think rituximab has really become the mainstay in addition to steroids of, and and IVIG, frankly, because we're always treating with neurologists. Um, the um, it. it there is hardly any center anymore that uses cyclo as a first uh, first drop. We years ago we we thought we could do a comparative trial because everybody was using cyclo, but rituximab is really effective. What I really want to emphasize is when you start treating a patient, you and you start using pulses of steroids or hydrosyl of steroids plus minus IVIG for an auto, presumed autoimmune encephalitis, the patient is likely going to get better at whatever speed it is. But the problem is that you that you the only reason the only way to get rid of the antibody itself is either to plex and get everything circulating out and or to give rituximab to prevent relapses. Because I've always like half of the time people get better with steroids and IVIG and everybody says, oh we don't need rituximab. And then you know, six months down the road, the child is right back to the hospital. It happens all the time because guess what? The B cells are still there. The B cells are still making the antibodies. And guess what? It comes right back and you've just invested um, or you've just given a lot of steroids and you're starting again from scratch. So especially with confirmed antibody-mediated disease, any antibody you have, I think rituximab has to be part of I'm just sorry, I really feel strongly about it because people, I always hear this, um, oh, a kid got so much better with steroids and IVIG already. Yep, I know, I know this is what works fast. Um, but whatever prevents relapses and um, and uh, allows you to get you off the toxic medication, which is steroid, um, is the rituximab. And for all of the other diseases, necrotizing diseases, we've got really good effectiveness of, of anakinra. I wouldn't use it as a, or I can't, you can use it fast. But um, uh, many people get steroids, IVIG, and anakinra at that time. For granulomatous diseases, I think the mainstay continues to be infliximab um, and obviously together with the second line uh, medication. So this is, but these are all. Um, all um, specific inflammatory pathways that you're targeting. Big picture vasculitides, if they're non-progressive, if they're, if they're monophasic, unilateral, steroids alone is the, uh, is the approach. If they're progressive or small vessel vasculitis, steroids and, um, and I would suggest cyclophosphamide or MMF. MMF definitely is a maintenance drug. And for, auto, uh, for autoimmune encephalitis, it's Steroids, IVIG, and rituximab um, that that have been the mainstay. If there is life-threatening disease, and you know some children or adults present with dysautonomia, which is has a high risk of mortality, um, I would consider Plex early on. Um, 
I know that the neurologist flexes when brainstem disease is there because they know the impact of brainstem disease. And I would I always go with their guidance um, uh, in that regard. So these are the the approaches. Vascular disease is a, is a T cell driven disease. Cyclosteroids or MMF is a good good approach. Antibody mediated steroids, IVIG, rituximab is the approach. And for everything that is either granulomatous, necrotizing, think about the pathway behind it and what targeted therapies we have. And I think our repertoire of targeted therapies has has increased dramatically. And we are this is really one of the reasons why they really like us at the table on the at the table for, for inflammatory brain diseases. Um, because we we have this basic understanding of, of inflammatory pathways and their targets we could we could find. In, uh, sorry, Janet, the, uh, we haven't talked about um, uh, about the interferonopathies, also a group of diseases that is increasing. Again, we have targeted therapies for those, and they're very effective. So really, those are small numbers of patients, but definitely benefiting from, from us as rheumatologists understanding inflammatory pathways and the targets. You said something really, um, a, a lot of fascinating stuff in there, but um, you mentioned an entity that I, I wanted to, to, to touch on, um, the non-progressive uh, vasculitis, the uniphasic cases. I, I, it, I, I've bumped into a couple of these cases, and I, I find what the hard part is, as, as um, from my perspective, is how do I know this is not going to progress? Because it's, it's a lot easier to give someone medication. It, it doesn't progress. And we go... Hey, I did it. I stopped it from progressing. I did such a good job and everyone high fives. Um, but actually, that means that if you treat everyone with, let's say, prednisone and cyclophosphamide, you are you are by design over treating some of these patients who just required a course of steroids would have been just fine. Can, can you kind of explain a little bit about how you can tell clinically who are these non-progressors? Oh, so that, this has really been... Um, years of my life when I, when I was a fellow <laughs> it's because I did a study together with neurology and rheumatology and um, the one group says we're under treating the other group says we're over treating by just using steroids right so it's really I was sitting right on the fence and there was no way out so uh, the there, there is a condition that the that has had many different names over the years you know some called it post varicella angiopathy they're calling it focal cerebral arthropathy they're calling this whatever, uh, we're calling it non-progressive primary CNS vasculitis, but the bottom line, it's a unilateral disease. It starts at the at the branching, of, or it, it involves the branching of the middle and anterior cerebral artery and the distal internal carotid artery. There's lots of research that shows that it can be triggered by varicella, it can be triggered by other viruses, but basically it's vessel wall inflammation in this specific area because the trigeminal ganglion sits right at this branch. So this is a disease entity. And frankly, it's a very common cause of childhood stroke. Um, when you, if you subtract the, the kids with heart disease, but if you think if you take previously healthy children, then about 80% of their childhood uh, strokes are exactly this condition. And I don't care how we call it, but I do care that it is a condition that is an inflammatory change in the vascular wall. So here comes the fly in the ointment. When they present with with stroke features, with hemiparesis or MCA territory disease, you don't know 
if this is because they just developed this disease or because we are finally having a critical stenosis in this area because they had an additional gastro or whatever, right? So so there it's it's never black and white. The the and that is reflected that when you then do vascular wall imaging with contrast, not everybody is having contrast in their vascular wall. Always and almost I mean, we're used to it with Tamiyashu, for example. Not everybody has active wall disease, right? So but that means you're over-treating a group of patients that have vascular wall narrowing but may not have as active wall disease. So we we went back and forth and back and forth to see uh, can we can we find can we be more specific and pick out these groups? So clinical phenotype, MCA, ACA, territory disease, sudden onset because it's large vessel disease. You can have artery to artery embolisms, right? You can have an embol and and clot that develops in the first narrowing, and and you most of the times, but not always, you have contrast enhancement in the vascular wall. So what we've shown is that when you give these children steroids uh, over three months, so 60, 50, 40 over three months, that you um, have a best, better vascular outcome. I think that's the critical piece. Um, you re-image them again after, uh, after three months, and if their disease is stable or improved, you taper them off the steroid and you sit on your hands and wait. But I think the majority of centers now around the world has started using this approach, making families aware that yes, that nine out of nine out of ten times there is vascular wall activity, and probably ten percent to overtreatment. I would, what we have shown is that you also hold progression, Daniel. So that means that if you then at three months say. At C progressive disease, and we've seen this in, in other vascular territories, mildly mildly um, active disease that you then can switch over this to calling it progressive disease, but you still haven't harmed the patient. Um, so this is kind of the way between saying we're not doing anything and we're just waiting for this to get worse, which is where one group started, or we're giving cyclo and steroids where the other group started, which is also over t- which is also not exactly right. So in between three months of steroids, re-imaging, is there a slight e- evidence of ongoing disease activity, new territories, disease progression that um, that is mild but clear, and then you can switch over if you have to. It doesn't happen frequently. In fact, we only had one child over the years that had progressive disease with this classical phenotype of non-progressive primary CNS vasculitis. The vast majority of children do well with this three-month course, course. And what Jorina Elvers has shown at Stanford is that the vascular outcome after a year time and subsequently is dramatically better if they have received steroids as opposed to have not received steroids. So that's the rationale behind it. That's really helpful. Um, it c- can we apply these kind of that same framework and those same kind of statistics that that you mentioned? Is that still applicable to adults? So I don't know. I think what Janet's facing is um, is a whole different uh, challenge with the differential diagnosis and with the confounders, right? She has yeah. confounders of medication, arteriosclerosis. Uh, she she probably uh, Janet, you may want to talk about. But we we don't have a lot of true mimics of vasculitis with, with uh, channelopathies that can mimic vasculite, large vessel vasculitis. 
obviously we can have children that have uh, that or young adults that are using cocaine. We have patients that are responding to birth control in a in a vasospastic way. But it's we are we are in a bit of a privileged situation that what we see is usually what we get. Whereas Janet, I think you have a lot more on the differential diagnosis, right? Right. Well, we don't have some of the ones that would be your auto-inflammatory, so to speak, that would be in the CNS. But we do have, um, and it's just, uh, you know, I almost think, okay, tell me, we'll see ischemic change. Is it demyelinating? So is it MS because it's periventricular? Or it's the opposite to that. Is that APS because it's more, you know, in the periphery? Is it atherosclerotic and the patient happened to have recently, a month ago, a V1 a zoster, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's, it, it is tough, but um, like I, 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 do, I do like your algorithm. And I mean, we certainly would say, okay, if the patient has Bichette's or sarcoid, we're going the infleximab route or some kind of monoclonal uh, TNF. And if they have something else, we're going the rituximab route and that cyclo is always available, pretty inexpensive, and our worries in an adult with cyclo aren't the same as, them. say, your your um, later teens where you are worried about stuff happening, um, ovulation-wise, et cetera. So, you know, I, 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 I like your systematic approach, and I think in adults, um, we, we do have, sometimes it's really so, uh, it's a lot that we treat shotgun. They're still on their antivirals. They're still, we're starting to give them glucocorticoids. We're trying to tee up whether it's um, IVIG, cyclo, or retox, or infleximab, depending on what we're seeing. And then we're following them carefully. And sometimes we really say, if the patient's quite sick and obtunded, the fact if they wake up and get out of hospital and can function, we think that's success. And we still have a question mark as to what the heck is going on. And sometimes over time, we'll know. And other times, maybe not. Absolutely. Susa, thank you so much. That was a really helpful um, kind of framework to approach some of these uh, really complicated patients, maybe our most complicated in many ways, uh, tissue that's inaccessible, imaging that maybe we're not the most expert at interpreting, examination that we leave to other people right. sometimes, um, that can make it particularly tricky to take care of these folks. But I, I think you've given us a lot of tools to at least approach these problems. So I wanted to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Really helpful for next time. We, we, know, we already knew who to call and now <laughs> yeah. we, we know the framework and know who to call. Absolutely. Well, thank you all very much. That's it for this episode of Around the Room. For questions, comments, and future episode ideas, email us at info at room.ca or tag our Twitter account with your question at C-R-A-S-C-R Room. Around the Room is produced by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Rumsey, and Aaron Stewart. We would like to give a special thanks to the Communications Committee and the staff of the CRA for their hard work. Our theme music was composed by Aaron Fontwell. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can also share this podcast with your colleagues and spread the word on social media. I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening.